Well, our next um, our next panel has gone through certain. Uh, I think the term I'll use is certain evolutions. Okay, we ready to? Uh, um, it's gone through certain, shall we say, uh, evolutions. Our uh, our panelist from uh, the Department of Defense who is going to be here to speak on the issue of beyond uh, 2AAD uh, uh, has unfortunately been unable to join us because of certain things going on right now with regard to Department of Defense and the government of China regarding a drone. Uh, and so I uh, asked uh, uh, Andy Krepinevich if he'd be willing to step in and to pinch hit and he gamely agreed to do so, uh, which we're delighted to have him back uh, for this panel uh, to talk about these issues. The other panelist for our group here is uh, Michael Pillsbury, my friend and colleague, a senior fellow at Hudson Institute, uh, who is a, a long uh, history of uh, and knowledge of uh, U.S. dealings with China, uh, is someone who has served in, in multiple presidential administrations, uh, who was special assistant on Asian affairs at the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, has worked with at the Office of Net Assessment, as Andy has, and who is the author most recently of The Hundred Year Marathon, uh, a book on China's grand strategy. Uh, and its approach to global affairs, a book which has been a bestseller not only in the United States and not only in Japan, uh, but, uh, but has also been a bestseller in uh, China. Um, and uh, I believe there's a Chinese translation. Michael, is that correct? Yes, for internal use. For internal use only. <laughs> uh, what, how many other translations has it gone through at this point? Uh, Korean. Korean. And it's in Taiwan. And it's a publisher out, It's coming out in Hindi. And it's coming out in Hindi. 600 million people read Hindi. 600 million readers eagerly awaiting uh, the 100 year <laughs> marathon in Hindi uh, when it hits bookstores from uh, Mumbai to Calicut. Um, Michael Pillsbury, as I always like to say, uh, what he doesn't know about China isn't knowledge. And so we're delighted to have him also as part of our panel and part of our, our, our lunch, our, our discussion here. Uh, the question I want to pose to both of you is, uh, beyond uh, A to AD, what are the Chinese going to do next when the U.S. comes out with a counter response to A to AD? Where do you see China moving next in its directions or adapting its current uh, anti-access, access denial strategies to the up, the coming next generation of systems and the kinds of developments that are taking place here. You're the China one. Is that addressed to both of us? I hope. It's addressed to both of you, whoever wants to field it first. Well, I think to answer that question, Arthur, you have to know a lot of what the Chinese have been writing about their grand strategy. Um, they see the military strategy part of grand strategy as only 10% of the weight of grand strategy. And 
Your question focuses really on military things, and that would not be the way Chinese strategy would approach it. Uh, their view on technology, for example, is very different from the U.S. and Japan. Uh, their view on technology, I discuss in a long chapter in, this, in my book, The 100-Year Marathon, is the best technology is what you can get from other people, other countries. You get other countries to fund your uh, national science system. Uh, that's why they have 100 agreements with the U.S. National Science Foundation. That's why we have a team in Beijing uh, headed by the minister counselor in the embassy for science and technology. And the U.S. transfers uh, almost all science and technology discoveries made by National Science Foundation or other government agencies uh, to those they uh, make grants to. They tr we transfer all that to China almost immediately. In fact, as a joke, the embassy sometimes has told me the Chinese will complain if they read about something and it hasn't been delivered yet to their Ministry of Science and Technology. So their view of technology is in part based on, a, on their grand strategy that to surpass the Americans, which they first laid out as a goal in 1955 to catch up and surpass the Americans, was a goal of Chairman Mao himself. To do that, they have this set of so-called comprehensive national power sectors. And the most important sector they decided fairly recently, uh, 1980, is technology, science and technology. As you know, all the leaders of communist parties uh, try to make a claim to a new discovery in Marxism-Leninism. It's not done here in America, but it's a kind of a big deal for Stalin and Khrushchev. And then uh, Mao, and then Deng Xiaoping had his claim. How did he pioneer the philosophy of Marxism-Leninism? And the answer was he made the discovery that science and technology is the greatest source of economic growth. China had not been focused on that from 1949 until 1980. After that, they began to do a whole series of things. For example, the, the president of China would hand out an innovation award cash award to a winner, and it would appear all over China uh, in newspapers and on television. Their program uh, with the Americans was not just a National Science Foundation. They did a survey uh, under early uh, President Reagan's time of all the things they wanted to develop uh, starting in 1983, and they found most of what they wanted, things like biotechnology, supercomputers, uh, genetics for agriculture. Uh, the leader in the world was the Americans. So for 30 years now, that program has been remarkably effective um, for the Chinese. In America, it's almost unknown. I tell the story in 100-Year Marathon of once we had a hearing uh, of a gentleman from the Department of State and some others about the cooperative agreements to help Chinese science and technology, including military science, by the way. There was a Defense Reform Commission set up by Bill Perry to provide American military technology to China. We also sold weapons, six weapon systems, to the Chinese, including torpedoes, a personal project of Secretary of the Navy at the time, John Lehman, uh, and other kinds of intelligence technology. I have a chapter in the book about the 12 covert action cooperation episodes between the U.S. and China.
Dr. Kissinger offered them in 1973 a direct hookup with our early warning satellites and said in a top-secret eyes-only memo just declassified a few years ago, we will provide you radar technology to make better use of the intelligence and warning we're going to be giving you in real time because your bombers are all on one base and you need to be able to scatter them uh, with early warning technology. So I'm trying to lay out for you what I cover in a couple of chapters in the book, Arthur. One is the grand strategy of China plays down the military spending and the military strategy. You miss understanding what China's up to if you look at the military side. A2AD, by the way, is a Pentagon acronym. It's not used by the Chinese. They don't describe what they've been doing for the last 10 years in our vocabulary. Their version of what they're doing is back to the 1955 a challenge by Chairman Mao. He had a list, of, a list of indicators, a kind of net assessment, if you will, and I'll say a couple of sentences about that word. He had a kind of a net assessment of how we would surpass the Americans. And at that time, they've since changed this, but at that time it was steel production was the single most important uh, measure by which they would surpass America. And that led to an episode in which between 20 and 30 million people died. It was not predicted by U.S. intelligence, by the way. It's 1958. It's called the Great Leap Forward. All over China, they set up communes and canteens for free lunch and began to set up uh, backyard blast furnaces. Why? To, to surpass the Americans in this single indicator of net, net assessment. Now, to my left, Dr. Kepanevich and I used to sit at the same time in net assessment. It's the fall of 92, as I recall. You were drafting something which later became known as the Revolution in Military Affairs, and you were discussing the cover letter that our boss, Andrew Marshall, would sign to disseminate it. And you told the story in a couple of books, actually, so I'm not disclosing anything. I was then working on what is China's grand strategy? And we realized we didn't have any books by Chinese strategic thinkers. And that led to a major effort, which today is more than 100 books on Chinese strategic thinking. But in the military sphere, if you press me on what exactly would they do to counter whatever the U.S. is doing, to counter their ATAD, our word, not theirs, they're playing a bigger game. They know they have a trillion dollars to spend for defense over the coming decade. There's a study by the RAND Corporation that derives that number. And that we are going to be trimming our defense budget by about a trillion dollars during that same period if the Budget Control Act is not changed. So in that pattern, they are thinking more on a global basis. A lot of China experts used to swear on a Bible, as it were, that China will never develop Two things, because it was the definition of what a hegemon is. And China's constitutional preamble says China will never become a hegemon. The two things were an aircraft carrier, or plural, aircraft carriers, and the second was a global military base network. Now, one Chinese colonel wrote about 10 years ago, Arthur, that China needs a global military base network. He was demonized over here by the few people who knew about it as a nut. 
He's actually a friend of mine in China. He just made the papers yesterday with some comments uh, about the drone in Beijing. Over time, the consensus has changed so that now two books that have come out in the last two or three years called Science of Strategy both say China needs a global military base network and something new has been added. China needs to stop the American domination of space and China needs to block the American domination of the cyber warfare domain. So this has been added in the last two or three years. So if I were looking for things to follow in what China is doing in its military strategy, I'd be looking at space and cyber. And if you saw the testimony in April, Arthur, seven DOD officials or officers from Space Command testified to the House Armed Services Committee about the new threat from space. Several of them, several of them used the word China. Uh, then they wanted to go into closed session to discuss it in detail. But that testimony reminded me of a moment when Dr. Andrew Kapanevich and I were in net assessment. A rather large amount of money was given to a man who shall remain anonymous to do a study. Chinese capability in space technology. He was highly uh, qualified to write this study. Uh, he came back with a 300-page report. That to summarize it in one sentence, China cannot do anything in space technology. We are so far ahead, we and the Soviets are so far ahead in the manufacturing processes, the batteries, long list of things, they will never be able to do anything. That was wrong. It's one of a series of assessments about China that were wrong. And in many cases, what you find is the analyst was interviewing Chinese about China's intentions and capabilities. And unlike Americans, who are very proud of accomplishments, achievements, uh, some would say to the point of arrogance, we're criticized around the world for that, Arthur, the Chinese approach to strategy is the opposite. You talk yourself down, you say you can't do anything, and you don't want to. So the reaction to my book laying out a thousand footnotes from Chinese materials about China having a strategy to replace us. You know the reaction in China, including by the vice foreign minister last week? This is nonsense. China has no strategy. This is their official position, publicly, public diplomacy. China has no strategy. It's certainly not secret. And we have no desire to replace the United States. Before I get to Andy's reply, uh, uh, comments, on my question. Um, now, these technical assistance programs you know, U.S. Provide, provided to China, those have all stopped, right, no. now that we have the new situation? <laughs> no, no, really? No. <clears throat> no, if you go to the National Science Foundation website, you will see the, the program is described there. It's growing. And in fact, the NSF now has a bonus. If, you, if you're an American researcher and you want to study, you know, what we just had the briefing on, for example, use of big data to, to mine in real time uh, false information. If you want to do that for the National Science Foundation, if you have a China cooperative partner, someone in China, you get additional funds for your project. So there's a huge disconnect between people who speak of China as a threat, which is still the minority in our government, and the mainstream view that China is our biggest cooperative partner in the world. We do things with China. We have done things with China. We would never do with Japan. We don't do covert action with Japan. 
Japan doesn't really have a CIA to do covert action, for one thing. We cooperate with the Chinese in a number of ways, including in technology, that we do not cooperate with Japan or other allies and partners the same way. This is just reality, and it's very shocking to many people. Um, I noticed your brilliant report on the very last page. You talk about Fujitsu bought this uh, technology in Texas, and it's part. You like this because it's part of allies sharing, you know, defense production. Uh, we've been doing that with China for quite a long time, and it's not. Uh, the sale of weapons was stopped in the Tiananmen incident in 1989. But defense technology is still a matter of negotiation. Is it dual use? Is it the same as they could buy from another country? Uh, we have the European Union has an arms embargo. So finished weapons systems, there's controls on that and some advanced high technology. But in the dual use area, you, f you usually find out that before something gets on the list to be denied to the Chinese, it can already be sold because it hasn't been turned into a munition or a dual-use technology yet. Andy? Well, uh, apropos of what Michael said about the uh, the Chinese false modesty about being good strategists or not being good <laughs> strategists, uh, <clears throat> several years ago, one meeting of the Defense Policy Board, uh, when Secretary Gates was Defense Secretary, uh, Henry Kissinger commented that the Chinese were the best strategists he ever came up against. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, in, in terms of our response to, you know, what the Chinese are doing uh, and how they might respond to us, uh, again, uh, I sort of pound home my earlier point, we, we have to decide what our response is. Uh, we haven't quite uh, decided to do that yet. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think time is not on our side. Uh, we need to begin to get our act together. Uh, in the broadest sense, uh, I think uh, we have to decide whether uh, anti-access area denial is the new normal. In other words, uh, is our traditional way of projecting power becoming obsolete? Is it a wasting asset? And if so, uh, what is our response to that? And I think... Uh, one response, which um, I developed with some colleagues called Air Sea Battle um, and elaborated on in a foreign affairs article uh, on archipelagic defense, uh, talks about, again, trying what we're trying to do, we're trying to defend the first island chain. If, if A2AD is the new normal, uh, then we need to establish our own A2AD uh, defenses along that chain. Uh, we need to do it uh, in terms of forward defense because, as Admiral Cota said, it's going to be increasingly difficult to reinforce. And so to have the bulk of your forces uh, at a great distance and have to move them uh, against this new normal, this new A2AD situation, is a very risky proposition. And so over time, creating more of a forward defense posture. Uh, at the same time, though, <coughs> we have to make sure that... Uh, if, there, if the A2AD regime is going to be supplanted, it's supplanted by us. In other words, we need to be the ones to, uh, if you want to use a historical analogy, uh, World War I showed the value of trench warfare. And if that's the new normal, then we need to get good at trench warfare. But we also, like the Germans, need to figure out how to restore maneuver, how to restore offensive capability. And you don't want to be the, the second one uh, in a race with China to be able to do that. 
So uh, again, I think there's kind of a dual uh, requirement on our part. One is to develop an offset to the Chinese A2AD capability, but also to develop a new source of competitive advantage in terms of overcoming that new defensive regime. And I think Admiral Kota uh, gave us some clues on how to do that. Uh, an interesting strategic question, if we do develop uh, these kinds of technologies and capabilities, will be whether to uh, pursue uh, what uh, Michael talked about, which is uh, sometimes referred to as the second move advantage. Uh, you know, how much do you uh, begin to divest what you have and, and to move into a new regime, or do you want to take advantage of uh, the first move advantage, to be the first to move into a, a new area of military competition? Uh, being a, sort of an amateur historian, uh, the British practiced the second move advantage uh, for much of the 19th century and shifted to the first move advantage uh, in the early part of the 20th century with respect to the naval competition. Uh, but to, I guess, make one final point, <clears throat> part of this effort, uh, I think, will be to look at uh, what I call the scouting competition, which is a, sort of a shorthanded way to talk about C4ISR. You know, who, who can see and who can move information about what's important on the battlefield or in the theater of operations? And second, the salvo competition, who can win the exchange of fires? And... <clears throat> Part of that, uh, just to give you a sense, because uh, we just had these briefings on UAVs and boost phase intercept and so on, and those are all valuable. But we need to think more broadly and more deeply about these sorts of things. And so, uh, for example, uh, if we are concerned about a major advantage that the Chinese have, which is a, a large ballistic missile force, uh, most supposedly armed with conventional warheads. Uh, we're banned from that because of the INF Treaty. Uh, but that's a key part of their holding at risk a lot of our uh, ability to strike back. Our forward bases, our, our aircraft carriers, we have a lot of eggs in very few baskets. And getting back to this point of an operational concept. So, uh, one way to think about whether you can continue to have forward bases or whether they're just too risky, whether you can continue to deploy carriers forward or whether that's just too risky, is thinking about how would you do that? And one way to think about doing that is to bring a group of capabilities and technologies together. So, for example, if you have long-range, long-dwell uh, strike systems that can operate in non-permissive environments, like the B-21 bomber, for example, uh, or long-loitering uh, uh, UAVs, uh, then uh, what you might be able to do is, instead of uh, Chinese missile attacks, say, on our forward air bases coming down in salvos, or uh, to use a, a, a rain metaphor, in a, in a downpour, uh, what happened when we had that kind of capability against a modest enemy in the first Gulf War was Saddam Hussein couldn't launch in salvos because he was too busy trying to hide his missiles and keep them from being knocked out. Uh, it came down in a drizzle. Well, a drizzle is a lot more easy for missile defenses to, to deal with than a downpour. You don't want to have your defenses saturated. Uh, another is to uh, knock out uh, their ability to scout uh, satellite systems, UAV systems, and so on, so that they can't do very good battle damage assessment. Uh, so we hit Kadena. You know, how much of Kadena do we really get? Uh, did we break those uh, those hardened concrete shelters uh, or not? 
And, I mean, there's another technology, advanced concrete, uh, which we actually worried about during the Cold War. So then, then you have that issue. Uh, so then they have to revisit with higher uh, you know, missile rates uh, because they can't tell whether they got the base or not. There is discussion among the Marine Corps uh, these days about why, why can't we, and our Air Force, why can't we proliferate the number of air bases in Saipan and Palau and other places, uh, not like Adena, but austere bases to create kind of uh, what we call during the Cold War with the MX missile, a shell game. Uh, our aircraft could be a one of six bases. Well, you don't know which ones because we knocked out your satellites. All right, well, that means if you want to make sure you get all our aircraft, you attack six bases, not one. But, oh, wait a minute, our missile defenses can now focus on the base where we know that we have the aircraft and ignore defending the other bases. So, again, it drives up their cost because now they have to realize that not only they have to hit all six bases, but they have to assume that all our missile defenses are concentrated on that one base. Uh, and again, this involves multiple kinds of technologies all brought together. It's not just boost phase intercept, although that's important. It's not just terminal phase intercept. Uh, it's, it's a combination. And of course, there are these technologies. Uh, for example, directed energy can help us with cruise missile defense as well as powder guns and, uh, <clears throat> What's the other one? Electromagnetic uh, you know, rail guns. Uh, so, uh, and again, you can begin to see how technologies play to this. It's, it's a very hard problem, and maybe for that reason we haven't really tackled it yet. But it's a problem, I think, that is of strategic significance. And so our ability to do that and our willingness to do that, and especially as allies, the need to do that together, I think is crucial. I'm going to squeeze out some time here for questions from the audience. If anyone has some. I just want to mention the word Taiwan, too, before we get questions from the audience. The test of whether we defend the first island chain or not, which Andrew said this morning is what we're doing, uh, the test would be whether Taiwan is part of American uh, defense planning. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious <laughs> it's not. We do not uh, send airplane, air, air force planes, naval ships. We've, uh, didn't, we used to have a two-star admiral on Taiwan called the Taiwan Defense Command. There was a joint war plan. There's also a two-star general uh, over in the embassy in charge of the military, the MAG program, the assistance and uh, sales program. Uh, Taiwan in those days functioned almost as part of the Seventh Fleet. There were exercises done against the joint war plan. There was intelligence cooperation. If there's a war with China, this is what we'll all do. Yeah. That all went away in 1979 and has never been restored. In fact, there's enormous consensus in our country not to restore it. So Taiwan, in some sense, as a military partner, simply does not exist for the United States. If that were to change, then some of the ideas you mentioned would make more sense. But it's not going to change. Even a telephone call to Taiwan's so-called elected president, according to Beijing is our consensus is that was a big violation of our national consensus. So if you can't take a phone call, how can you have joint exercises, a joint war plan, develop technology together? And I'll mention something else besides the word Taiwan, Arthur, that needs to be on the table if you're talking about technology strategy of China. Uh, one of the key concepts in my Assassin's Mace chapter, Assassin's Mace is a Chinese concept in which you must have cheaper 
technology than your opponent in that same sector. So last uh, December 14th, just after midnight, off, the, off Honolulu, the John Paul Jones fired two SM-6 missiles and shot down a simulated ballistic missile target successfully. The Missile Defense Agency announced this uh, on its website. It's actually a very big deal. Not noticed in the United States. What do you suppose the reaction was in China? They're curious to know the price of an SM-6. In Japan, I would think, since the SM-3 program in Arthur's paper is described as a huge success, uh, I would think Japan would be interested in the SM-6 as well. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, uh, we have one vote from the Admiral. Admiral Koda. Keen interest. Uh, the other thing to think about in terms of your larger question, our response, sometimes when the United States does something, it's misunderstood by the Chinese in either a good way or a bad way from our point of view. <clears throat> I think a lot of Americans, including me, thought the FAD being deployed in South Korea would be a good thing, not from the Chinese point of view. They put up a number of articles that the SPY-2 radar, when it's converted, it takes eight hours to convert from short range to long range. When it's converted to long range, it has 1,800-mile range, so it covers the Chinese ICBM silos, all of them. And then with enough missiles at the THAAD site in South Korea, instead of 48, which is what the press says, if it's much greater, the entire Chinese ICBM force, according to them, gets neutralized. And fairly cheaply. Now, this is kind of interesting. There's a number of graphics the Chinese have published also showing what the SPY-2 radar in Japan can do. So the Chinese are thinking ahead, but again, they're asking, what's the cost of ballistic missile defense compared to these very, very cheap uh, DF-21 and DF-26 anti-aircraft carrier missiles? So that's another factor. That's two things for you. Taiwan and the price of countering uh, the opponent's in the case of China, I can't say opponent. Our friends move. <laughs> That's right. Andy? Uh, the, the only thing, uh, you know, Mike talked about the, uh, you know, the Chinese looking at strategy in multiple dimensions. Uh, one thing that really uh, strikes me about Taiwan, and I hadn't thought of this until uh, a colleague, Bob Kagan, raised the issue in his book, is uh, to some extent Taiwan really functions in a similar way to West Berlin uh, in the Cold War in the sense that you have this alternate system uh, sitting next to the system that the CCP has created. And for the Chinese people, that system represents the alternative in terms of material well-being, personal freedom, individual liberty, uh, lack of uh, environmental protection, uh, you know, openness to the outside world. And I think from a political point of view, uh, apart from the strategic uh, military issues that Michael raised, uh, that's an incredibly uh, important uh, role that, that Taiwan plays uh, in, in terms of the CCP and its its ability to to argue that it's the uh, legitimate. It offers the legitimate best pass for for the Chinese people. And the other, of course, is to the extent that we are self limited in our ability to cooperate with the Taiwanese. Uh, perhaps over time, our Japanese friends will not be so self limited. Except that's one of the promises Dr. Kissinger made to the Chinese. We will, America will not allow, he used the word allow, Japan to play a role in Taiwan's defense. 
Dr. Kiss, Dr. Brzezinski revealed this of uh, Henry Kissinger in his own memoir. That's when it first was made public. Yeah, several comments from Fai's side. <laughs> the, the, the first, uh, the science and technology. I recommended to create some form of the uh, technology containment strategy, strategy against China. Because exactly, that's our concern. U.S. is so kind to provide the vital te technology and science information to China. So that's really against our policy. And if U.S. is serious mm -hmm. about thinking China as a future potential policy uh, th uh, threat, I think it's it is a time for two nations, Japan and U.S., to discuss and create some form of uh, technology containment mm -hmm. against China. Without that, we would lose the race. That's one thing. And the, the, the second, the, the, of course, keeping the U.S. forces in our area. It's, you know, the, the cost associated and heavy sweat and labor associated. But for China, of course, still the largest obstacle and threat has been the U.S. Navy and the Air Force and the Marines. And will be so in the future. So if this is the reality, by all costs, Japan and the U.S. has to develop. And one thing, protecting the first island chain, especially in Japanese part, is not U.S. responsibility. That's our role. Because Japan is responsible to protect our own land, including islands. We don't ask U.S. come and protect our islands. Rather, we want the U.S. military to exercise its strike or to show strike capability against China to deter. That's a basic mission, strategic mission sharing between Japan and the United States. And first line of, uh, first island chain. Oh, and in addition to that, U.S. may ask Japan, do you have the capability? Yes. Our size of the Navy is larger than the size of the U.S. Pacific fleet, other than carrier. Okay. Or well, the size of the, the Air Force, number of fighter is larger than the U.S. PAC Air Force fighters combined. And those robust Navy, protective Navy, and protective Air Force are conducting defensive role in our region. But one thing lacking is the strike capability under the Japanese constitution. That's what we want U.S. to exercise. If this happens, perhaps China will hesitate. And the, 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 the last thing is, please think about that. Geography and geopolitics. Whatever the Chinese Navy and Air Force they have in the future, they are still contained in the South China Sea and East China Sea. Okay. And especially in the South China Sea, that's, that's a, it's something like the thermos. Thermos, we will be able to keep the very hot, the tea or cold on the rocks in the bottle, right? And the South China Sea is the internal, the container. And 
the line connecting Taiwan, Philippines, and uh, uh, Indonesia, and the, the Vietnam. That's the outer container. So for us, especially what we need to do, I'm not discussing the current status, but what we need to do to develop is a new concept. How to protect the outer skin of the farmers, Taiwan and the Philippines. Of course, Duterte is something different, but we need to develop new idea or new strategy to keep the outer skin of the farmers hard enough to contain China within the internal jar. That, and same is true. East China Sea, it's not the farmers, but at least robust self-defense force supported by U.S. strike capability are protecting. So for China, realizing A2AD is not easy job. Sure. That's their concept. But operationally, today they are free to transit our straits. But in the crisis and the, the, the wartime, not so. But at the same time, we have problems. That's why I'm saying three things. Fleet ballistic missile defense capability and Japanese ballistic missile defense capability and cruise missile defense capability together with sabotage. That's the, the responsibility for Japan. But free ballistic missile defense capability, that's the joint. But th th those are the, you know, the, the, the things I wanted to say in this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, just very quickly, because I, I do have to go on the, on the uh, problem here. Um, in, in terms of fleet ballistic missile defense, I think that's extremely important uh, within the context of the uh, a much uh, more broad, comprehensive approach to missile defense. Um, second, I think an interesting question for the Japanese fleet would be in a crisis. Would it, uh, will they still stay in port? Uh, and be highly vulnerable. I mean, if American aircraft carriers are concerned about coming close, uh, what would be the disposition of the, the Japanese fleet? All right. How close are you at sea? Uh, and and what, what is your alternate basing? What, what are your alternate logistics? How are you going to break a blockade of uh, Japan? How? China blockading Japan. If, if the war lasts more... What? We will block the strait. They can. Uh, they can uh, hit your... In the Cold War, in the Cold War days, we did against Soviet. First, if, if we assume... The Chinese if, are if, watching if, this if panel, we, okay? Yeah. The Chinese are watching this panel. You guys are making me very uncomfortable. If, if, we, assume, if we assume that they are going to begin the war... In public... Then they can pre-position submarines. They can target your ports with ballistic missiles. They can employ uh, and uh, position uh, smart mines. Right. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is, for me, one of the interesting moves of, in terms of China moving into the South China Sea, obviously there are resources there and so on. Uh, but uh, what it strikes me is if, if we were playing a game of Wei Qi uh, with the Chinese, uh, they have moved some stones into very interesting positions, which essentially have, if we don't respond, have put us in a position of losing a lot of our strategic depth in Southeast Asia and in the Philippines. Yes, well, you know how to play. The Americans may not know how to play very well. We, at, yes, absolutely. So thank One you. One quick question before you go. Would you support Japan's creating an Office of Net Assessment? 
like we have in the Pentagon? Yes, I think it's it's a very useful way of, of thinking about these kinds of problems. Yep, so, definitely. Thank you and, so much. Andy, Michael, thank you so much. Michael, is there a Japanese translation of 100-year marathon? Yes, I'm going to give it to Admiral Yoda. Oh, there you, you have it already. He's got it already. Well, for your wife. Uh, I, want to, I want to thank our panelists for, uh, for what has been a, sh a, a, a really fascinating discussion. And, and I want to put in one final, I want to put in one final word. And that is the story, there's a story today in Global Times, which as you know is part of China Daily, that uh, seafood from the South China Sea is now on sale in Beijing. And that uh, Chinese consumers are finding these seafood very good. Uh, in fact, even tastes better than seafood from the East China Sea. <laughs> and uh, did you know that? Did you know that? And the upshot of the article, and also, I'm not sure it's true. And also, the online comments. The on, the upshot of it was is that as China's presence grows in the South China Sea, that this will be an economic boom for the peoples living around the South China Sea. That fishermen, for example, will now have an entire new market that will open up for them in China as a result of this. And that what we see with China's growing role there then is the promise of economic prosperity radiating out through to the shores of the countries that border on the South China Sea. That article is, I think, a very good reminder of us, not just before lunch. It's, uh, it's also a very good reminder of the fact that the, is that the, is that the, uh, that the A2 AD strategy is not only taking place in the military or in the economic sphere, but also in the information domain. Uh, and I think that article is a very interesting example, and the comments that go with it, of how that kind of The Chinese name for ADA2, we keep saying over here, is counter-intervention strategy. It's to counter American intervention. Yeah, that was part of, yes, yeah, absolutely. Time for lunch. No seafood from the South China Sea, but I think you'll enjoy the lunch anyway. Thank you very much.